This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 123. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's topic, lessons from the front lines. Free transcripts, courtesy of your opponent? Maybe. Here's how. Hey, everybody. I hope you're doing great and, as always, killing it in your depositions. Today, I want to highlight a brand new court ruling from a federal judge that granted a plaintiff's request to force the adversary who had filed a summary judgment motion using excerpts from several depositions taken in the pending case to immediately give the plaintiff the entire transcripts from each of those depositions. And the judge's order does not require the plaintiff to pay for them. The record clearly shows that the plaintiff had not ordered any of the transcripts. In fact, plaintiff's counsel in arguing that the court should require the defendant to turn them over, pointed out that it would cost a little over $1,800 if the plaintiff had to buy them directly from the reporter. It was, the plaintiff said, an unnecessary burden and expense. The motion says the plaintiff served a request for production prior to the close of discovery and specifically sought deposition transcripts. And the motion adds that the defendant's duty to supplement its responses to those timely requests for production continued even after discovery closed. So, the plaintiff argued, the defendant needed to cough them up at no charge and told the court that the motion was necessary because the defense would not do so. And the judge agreed. Without ordering the plaintiff to pay for the transcripts, The court said that because the defendant was affirmatively relying on those transcripts in support of its motion for summary judgment, and because the plaintiff had timely requested them before discovery closed, and further because the interests of fairness warranted the relief, the court ordered the defendant to hand them over. All right, so let's pause just for a moment. Keep in mind that this is a Lessons from the Frontlines episode. As you know, in addition to our regular episodes, on deposition strategies and tactics, we also feature brand new court rulings on deposition-related issues from around the country. And we title these episodes Lessons from the Front Lines, obviously because they reflect issues being litigated right now in pending cases around the country. Because these episodes focus specifically on brand new court rulings, usually within the last several days prior to the publication of the episode focusing on them, It means that the rulings can be withdrawn, modified, appealed, or otherwise changed. So we like to stress that. I also want to point out that this episode focuses specifically on using a request for production to obtain transcripts of depositions taken in the current case, not from related or prior litigation. There are lots of cases saying that you can use an RFP to obtain transcripts from related or prior litigation from your opponent. I covered that in the fourth edition of the book, 10,000 Depositions Later, page 591, section 15.09, titled Getting Transcripts from Other Cases. And of course, we cited some supporting authority in there on that point. So this episode deals specifically with using RFPs to grab transcripts from your adversary in the same case where you are serving the RFP rather than getting them from the reporter. It's a technique that clearly upsets lots of people and judges. Personal views aside, though, the question is, can it be done? 
And the answer is yes. Will it work every time? Probably not. Should it? Well, the rules clearly do not forbid it. Next question, are there cases where judges have said that RFPs are not a proper tool to obtain transcripts from an opponent who ordered and paid for them in the current case while it's still pending? Yes, there are. But you should know that the decisions in the show notes that we've included to illustrate the point where judges have said you can't do it rely on a questionable interpretation of Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 30, the main deposition rule, and that the judges that say, no, this isn't uh, permissible, seem mostly driven by principles of fairness rather than the plain language of the rule. And even in cases where judges have said, you can't do this, uh, some of those judges said, well, there could still be exceptions where it might be permissible. Now, is there a rule that specifically forbids their use of RFPs to get transcripts from an adversary of depositions taken in the current case? Well, some judges who've rejected the use of this tactic have pointed to Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 30F3. That subsection says that you can get transcripts by asking the court reporter and paying the tab. But that rule clearly doesn't say this is the only way to get transcripts, and it doesn't say this is the only circumstance by which you can get them. It says that getting them from the reporter is a way. And in what I say is a telltale sign that the judges know that subsection F3 really doesn't forbid this technique is how quickly the judges in those opinions pivot away from the language of the rule and into a discussion about how unfair this tactic is. And at least two opinions in the show notes, in fact, courts have said flatly, this shouldn't be allowed because it would allow parties to cut court reporters out of money for their hard work. In another case, the judge said uh, rhetorically, who would pay for a transcript if it could be done this way? So there are several telltale signs that the rules actually don't bar your use of a request for production to obtain transcripts that an adversary has bought and paid for in the current case. First telltale sign that this really isn't forbidden. If it was, uh, these decisions wouldn't be necessary. The rule would tell you all you need to know. Case closed. If the drafters had really intended uh, to limit the scope of Rule 34, the Request for Production Rule, they could flatly say so. It would take no more than a single sentence. They could at any time uh, in the hundred years or so since the rules of civil procedure were first adopted have grafted a clause onto an existing sentence within Rule 34's discussion of what it allows you to obtain along the lines of, quote, dot, 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 except that a request shall not be used to obtain transcripts of depositions taken under Rule 30 in the same case in which the request is served, close quote. Something like that would have been very easy. I say the drafters have never added a prohibition because there are just too many circumstances where it might make sense to allow a party to obtain transcripts directly from an adversary who's bought and paid for them and now has them using a request for production. The drafters could have even added language saying that serving an RFP for transcripts of depositions in the current case may be served with leave of court 
or shall not be obtained without leave of court. But we don't even have that. Here's another telltale sign that it isn't forbidden. If the rules clearly barred this technique, it would be completely unnecessary, wouldn't it, for courts to invoke principles of equity or fairness in saying that they will not allow it. And even in some of the decisions that say this can't be done, the judges uh, speak of exceptions where they say maybe. Exceptions such as when a party clearly cannot afford to order the transcripts and it's appropriate in the interests of justice. Exceptions such as where a court reporter wants outrageous fees. And something else to think about. If it's okay to obtain transcripts from an adversary using a request for production, where the transcripts were generated from depositions in related or prior cases, how could it be impermissible to do it in the current case? Rule 34, some lawyers would argue, either allows you to request transcripts or it does not. And if the concern is that court reporters are not being paid for their labor, one might think it would be equally impermissible and equally unfair to ever obtain transcripts from an opponent regardless of the action in which the transcripts were generated. In that respect, and kind of wondering out loud, is it that it strikes some judges as simply unfair to the party that ordered and paid for them in the pending case? Is that it, even above and beyond concerns about fairness to the court reporter? All right, so bottom line is that you should at least be aware, uh, on behalf of your clients, that there is no flat prohibition, at least under the federal rules of civil procedure and in the supermajority of jurisdictions that have adopted those rules against using requests for production to obtain transcripts in the possession of an adversary who ordered and paid for them in the current case. And this is true even with respect to transcripts first obtained by adversaries after discovery closed. The federal rules have been read to say parties must continue to supplement their discovery responses past the close of discovery, even into trial. That's the Bank Atlantic case in the show notes. All right, let's talk briefly about the case in the spotlight today. We'll talk about some of the nuances, offer some practical tips as always, and then we'll be done. The case we look at today is Colazo, C-O-L-L-A-Z-O versus Safe Light Fulfillment Inc., currently pending in the Middle District of Florida. It's an employment discrimination case involving allegations of gender discrimination and retaliation in various forms. About a year after the lawsuit was filed, the defendant moved for summary judgment, and as you might expect, they filed excerpts from several depositions taken in the case in support of their motion. The plaintiff did not have those depositions and had not ordered them, but obviously wanted and needed them. So the plaintiff, after conferral with the defendant, who said, nope, not going to turn them over to you, moved to compel their immediate production. The basis for the plaintiff's motion to compel was that she had, during discovery, served a request for production for, quote, any affidavits, statements, or records of statements you or your attorneys have obtained from any individual concerning the allegations contained in the complaint, close quote. And this particular request uh, included the following, quote, this request specifically includes but is not limited to deposition transcripts, end quote. Again, unsurprisingly, the defense says no can do. And that's what they said earlier when the plaintiff served her original request for production, 
that sought the transcripts. In response to that original request, the defendant served a response that said, with respect to transcripts in particular, quote, defendant additionally objects to this request to the extent that it seeks to shift future transcript costs to the other party, close quote. So the plaintiff's motion in this case is titled Time-Sensitive Motion to Compel Production of Supplementary Discovery Documents, end quote. Her argument was very simple. One, the defendant has these transcripts. Two, we timely asked for them during the discovery period. And three, the defendant is under a duty to supplement their discovery responses even though discovery has closed. And again, by the way, we have a couple of cases in the show notes on that very point, specifically the BAR, B-A-H-R, and Bank Atlantic cases. At least in federal court, you've got to keep supplementing your discovery responses until the case is over. The plaintiff's motion also correctly points out that the rules of procedure don't provide a safe haven for the defendant on this point. There is no carve-out, the plaintiff said, for the production of transcripts timely sought in an RFP and now in the possession of an opponent. To the extent that the defendant had already paid for them, the plaintiff says uh, in her motion to the court, they have the right to have those costs taxed against the plaintiff if they prevail. And to top it off, the plaintiff says, the defendant has the right to tax the entire cost of the deposition if they prevail, even though they only filed excerpts uh, with the court in support of the motion. So no real harm to the defendant, the plaintiff argues, which had already paid for them. This motion was filed on a Wednesday. Early the next morning, the judge entered the following as what's called a text order. Uh, footnote here, a text-only order is an order that a federal judge will enter directly into the online case docket without an attached document. The judges will literally type their entries into the court docket itself exactly like a text message to the parties. Even as entered, text orders are still court orders and are as official and binding as if the judge had entered a formal written order. Why do judges use text orders? I think sometimes, especially in time-sensitive matters, it's just a lot easier for the judges to type the ruling quickly and in an informal way as a docket entry. Sometimes, too, one might speculate. A judge may use a text order to resolve sticky issues in a way that won't necessarily be hoovered up, indexed, and made retrievable by companies like Westlaw and Lexis. In other words, they can enter binding rulings in this manner, but in a way that is likely uh, to limit awareness of the ruling to those uh, directly involved in the case. Second footnote on the issue of text orders. As part of our research for this episode, and really uh, because of our own curiosity, we decided to call Westlaw and talk to one of their research attorneys to help us better appreciate whether text orders in general, and perhaps this particular text order in particular, are sometimes used by judges as a way to accomplish a ruling and at the same time limit awareness or publication of that ruling. Now, the research attorney we spoke with said that with respect to federal district courts, that's the trial level system in the federal judiciary, Westlaw generally does not publish their rulings unless someone sends them in, meaning the judge, one of the parties, or one of the lawyers, or of course, unless uh, the case winds up on Westlaw's radar in some other manner. The research attorney also said 
Westlaw generally does not gather text entries in court dockets for publication. They're hard to find, they're not part of a document, and they don't typically meet Westlaw's requirements for publication. That doesn't mean that dockets containing text orders can't be printed out and sent to uh, Westlaw, Lexis, or one of the other legal research companies, only that they generally aren't. And that reinforces the belief of some that this method of issuing orders is occasionally used to accomplish a particular result while at the same time uh, perhaps limiting awareness and publication of the ruling. All right, back to the actual text order entered in the Colazo case. So early the next morning after the motion was filed, the court entered the following directly into the docket. Quote, text order granting in part and denying in part time-sensitive motion to compel production of supplementary discovery requests. Given the impending summary judgment and other deadlines, the court finds good cause to rule on the motion without awaiting a response. Because plaintiff seeks production of transcripts that defendant has affirmatively relied upon in moving for summary judgment, the court finds the motion to be timely and well taken. Even if plaintiff had not requested production of transcripts before the close of discovery, the court finds that the interest of fairness and judicial economy weigh in favor of requiring defendant to produce the full transcripts now so that plaintiff may read them in their entirety before responding to the pending motion for summary judgment. Accordingly, defendant must produce to plaintiff the subject transcripts in their entirety no later than noon Eastern on Friday, July 21, 2023. The court grants the motion to compel to the extent it seeks production of the deposition transcripts. The court denies the motion to the extent that it seeks any different relief, including an award of fees and costs, end quote. And that was that. The plaintiff was successful in obtaining multiple transcripts from depositions in the pending case from the defendant at no expense, including deposition transcripts of the plaintiff herself, a corporate representative, and at least two other witnesses. Now, whether the plaintiff will ever have to pick up the tab for that remains to be seen. Cases resolve in all kinds of ways, as you know. Now, you'll see cases in the show notes where courts have gone both ways on this issue. You'll see cases where courts have ordered transcripts to be produced in this manner in response specifically to a request for production for transcripts taken in the pending case, even if the party in possession did not obtain them until after discovery closed, as long as the transcripts were sought in a timely request for production before discovery came to an end. And you'll see cases that say no, transcripts are not a proper target of a request for production. Those cases, again, generally rely on Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 30, the main deposition rule, and specifically subsection 3, which says in part the following, quote, when paid reasonable charges, the officer, meaning the court reporter, must furnish a copy of the transcript or recording to any party or the deponent, end quote. Now that language pretty clearly does not make the court reporter the sole source of transcripts. And so what you see driving the cases that say you can't use an RFP in this manner are rationalizations based on fairness and not on a law, rule, or regulation. Some judges don't even try to mask their disdain for this particular approach. The federal magistrate judge in the Express Freight case, a 2022 ruling 
from the Eastern District of New York called this assertion that you can use an RFP in this manner curious, misguided, and peculiar, asking rhetorically, if defendant is correct and an opposing party can be required under the federal rules of civil procedure to provide free deposition transcripts during the discovery phase, why would a party ever bother purchasing their own copy of a transcript? Fair question. Also a fair question, why hasn't this been explicitly addressed by the rules? Why haven't the drafters of the rules of civil procedure, who have amended them many times since their adoption, ever addressed this? Why don't judges address this in local rules to the extent that they have the authority to do that? Lawyers in the position of using this technique might say that the lack of resources forces them to be creative in obtaining transcripts at little or no cost. Perhaps neither their firm nor their client could afford to buy them independently. They might say, well, if we're going to talk about fairness, we should be able to get transcripts at no expense if the transcripts, at least excerpts of them, have been affirmatively used against us in the current proceeding. Other lawyers might say, well, if the rules don't forbid it, it's my obligation as a zealous advocate to use every tool in my arsenal for the benefit of my client. You'll see even more exasperation about this particular tactic in the 2008 Shorer case from Colorado. That's also in the show notes. There the judge refused to order a party in possession of transcripts to turn them over in response to a request for production. And here's what the judge said. Quote, Contrary to the assertions of the plaintiff in support of his motion, it is unusual for a party to attempt to compel the production of deposition transcripts from another party by means of a request for production of documents under Rule 34. I find that Rule 34 concerning the production of documents and tangible things is not an appropriate mechanism to obtain a copy of the transcript of a deposition taken in the same action." End quote. Again, you get a sense that there's sort of a visceral reaction here, that this just isn't playing fair. That would explain the use of language like curious or peculiar or misguided, or opinions where the court simply says, this is just unusual and it isn't appropriate, rather than quoting directly from a rule on the topic. And more, the court in the 2022 Friend case uh, from the Northern District of Indiana said with apparent similar frustration that, quote, applying it in the way requested by the plaintiff would cut court reporters out of the payments they have earned and are entitled to under Rule 30F3, close quote. Some of the cases in the show notes that we provided for you reach the same conclusion, but simply cite some of the other cases in the show notes without any meaningful analysis on their own about this particular issue. So what's the takeaway here? Well, there is no flat prohibition in the federal rules and in state court rules based on the federal rules against using a request for production to obtain transcripts of depositions taken in the current case from an opponent who ordered them, paid for them, and has them. Is it fair? Our goal in the books, in the courses, and in this podcast 
is to alert you to viable strategies and tactics relating to your deposition practice. It's very easy to see both sides of this argument, and I don't mind telling you that there were sharp disagreements among our researchers and production crew for the podcast about whether we should even tackle this topic in an episode. Some felt very strongly that it was just wrong to even address it or to suggest that it's a viable technique. Opposing voices said, by what measure is it wrong? You know, there was a mediator that I used to use who annoyingly would say in his openings in a heavy country twang, I ain't never seen a pancake so thin that it only had one side, which I think meant arguments can be made for and against just about anything. We all have court reporters who are professional acquaintances, colleagues, and friends, and they earn their living the hard way, listening to us. But it's easy to see why the committees that draft and revise the rules on a regular basis have left this technique open and in play. There are simply occasions where fairness swings the other way and dictate that oppressive discovery or deposition tactics that have run up a bill uh, justify an order requiring that transcripts be provided to the non-movement directly from an adversary that paid for them. In some cases, it may simply benefit the court to have the non-movement be able to obtain the transcripts in this manner for the purpose of presenting the best possible argument in opposition. That increases the odds that the court will reach the right result. All right, let's run through some practice tips and then we'll wrap up. If you wish to obtain transcripts of depositions taken in the current case using a request for the production, consider the following. First, obviously serve a request for production that expressly seeks deposition and other transcripts taken in the current case. Second, be sure to serve it during the discovery period and that means serving it so that the response will be due before discovery closes. Many courts say that a discovery request is only timely made if the response is also due before the discovery deadline. Third point, make sure that you timely pursue the matter once you learn that an adversary has ordered and received transcripts but has not supplemented. Fourth, confirm that your jurisdiction on that note requires supplementation after the initial response to your request is served to ensure that your opponent has an ongoing obligation to supplement. If your jurisdiction in fact requires supplementation without further requests, one such request is obviously enough. Some state court rules on the other hand specifically say that once a response to a discovery request is served, there is no further obligation to update or supplement. If you're in one of those jurisdictions, then it's important to regularly reserve the request for transcripts and to serve one at the tail end of discovery so that the response is due on or at the close of discovery, which would require the adversary to serve copies of any transcripts obtained up to that point. Next, if you move to compel, consider the following arguments in your motion. One, that you made timely discovery requests. Two, that you specifically asked for deposition transcripts of depositions taken in the current case. Three, that you've learned that the opponent is now in possession of transcripts. Four, that there's an ongoing duty to supplement and that they haven't done so. Or, if there is no ongoing duty to supplement, that you served 
multiple requests for transcripts and that the adversary was in possession of one or more transcripts prior to the time that their last response uh, was due. Additional argument. Stress that your client, if it's accurate, cannot afford to order the transcripts on their own. And so an order directing the opponent to produce them is in the interest of justice and will assist the court in reaching the correct result. Argue also that requiring your client to order them when the defendant already has them will cause undue burden and expense, whereas the opponent can easily transmit them at no additional cost. Argue as well that the opponent has no legal basis to avoid production and that the applicable rule in no way excludes or carves out transcripts from documents that can be requested. Argue, if applicable, that the court reporter is seeking excessive or outrageous charges. Argue, if applicable, that the opponent took an unnecessary number of depositions and prolonged each of them, creating an extreme and burdensome expense in the form of numerous transcripts that your client simply can't afford. That's from the Shorer case in Colorado. One of the cases that said you can't use a Rule 34 request, but nonetheless outlined circumstances, including extreme expense, where requiring production would be just under the circumstances. And don't forget to get a quote from the reporting agency or agencies on the cost of obtaining the transcripts that you now seek from the opponent. If you're going to argue that ordering them separately is cost prohibitive, you've got to establish the cost for the court. A generic assertion that the transcripts would be costly probably won't get you where you need to go. The lawyer for the plaintiff in the Colazzo case that we've talked about today very smartly wrote the court reporting agencies, got written quotes, and attached them to the motion for the court to see. All right? One last point, and then we'll be done. If you want to go on PACER.gov, that's the federal court database, and find the text order mentioned here, or really any text order, you'll have to use what's called the docket report feature, which lists every entry of every kind in the case. If you only search history slash documents or display docket text, you won't find them. You won't find text orders there. You have to run the full docket report. So it's buried a few layers deep. And that's probably one of the reasons why the big legal databases will not have them. The only way to find things like this, the text orders, is either to have it happen in one of your cases, in one of your colleagues' cases, or to learn about it through places like this podcast. All right, very interesting topic, one that definitely triggers lots of strong reactions and one with some fact-specific equitable considerations. Thank you for listening. And as always, be sure to check out the book on which this podcast is based, 10,000 Depositions Later, The Premier Litigation Guide for Superior Deposition Practice, now in its fourth edition at 615 pages. It truly is the ultimate practitioner's guide to every phase of your civil, criminal, administrative, and arbitrative deposition practices start to finish. I hope you have a great week, and we'll talk to you again soon.